Welcome to this episode of Spiritual Hustle. I'm Anthony Filipovich, and along with me is co-host Justin Skabinski. On this podcast, we would like to welcome Adam Morelli. Adam is an artist and cultural photographer. After completing a degree in sculpture and photography at NYU, Adam apprenticed under a master builder working on high-end residential projects in Manhattan. Concurrently, he studied under a Zen monk for seven years. In exchange for his education, Adam learned how to maintain the monastery, and this afforded him an unparalleled understanding of both the ways in which things are made and how beliefs are put into practice. His work combines a background in construction with a study of ancient building techniques. It looks at the influences of shamanic practices on temple architecture and how temples were designed as buildings for vision. His most recent work explores our paradoxical relationship with the architecture of the ocean. One part fascination, one part fear. The ocean is a polarizing landscape where the rules of geometry and human senses are challenged. Adam, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Adam, I thought where we would start our discussion is around um, temple architecture and how temples were designed to be buildings of, of vision. Like, I, I know you have a deep understanding of geometry, and I believe that the architecture's the, the basis of the architecture is a geometry, is geometry. Can you explain to us like how geometry was used to, to build these buildings of for vision? So it's an, it's an area that has a lot of conflicting information. And yeah. I think that what separates it from other types of architecture is that um, when you think about most of the types of buildings that we interact with on a daily basis, you don't really need to believe in them. You know, like you go into the bank to get money, like you don't really exercise much belief beyond the expectation that when you put a piece of plastic into a keyboarded machine, it may or may not kick out money. Right. Temple architecture is particular in that it doesn't have any secondary purposes. It is, there's, there's not an open commercial aspect to it. You tend not to reside in it. Even when you have temples within monastic complexes, there's always a part that is used strictly for a belief practice. And it's something that's made the architecture fairly unique. Uh, it seems from what I've studied in ancient architecture that ever since people could flip a rock on end and demonstrate some intention to moving earth matter around, they started making altars at some level. I imagine that two million years ago, the perilous earth with all of its you know, weather, animals, safety hazards, it was probably a pretty overwhelming place to exist. And as people tried to make peace with the world around them, you get places where they concentrated buildings of belief and buildings of offering. So as this developed, and this developed in a lot of, you find a lot of concurrences. You find periods of building where the Mayans and the Romans are building at the same time. There are certain overlaps. Like humanity seemed to evolve in certain areas with some sort of, there was a, there was a relative, uh, it was a relative concurrence in the way that they developed. Now, if you get really lofty on the belief side, you start bringing in, um, you know, mappings of the earth where there are energetic centers and the energetic centers are connected and the temples were mapped and all built by one alien culture. You know, it, it gets, it gets really la la land really quickly. <laughs> really crazy. Um, 
And it's, it's interesting. I mean, like the overlaps are, they're fun to look at. Uh, my particular interest was not in finding a unified theory of spiritual construction and its development, but to look at, from a very practical standpoint, how and why people built architecture uh, to, in, to some way deal with their belief system. Does that make sense? That, that makes sense. But the, the thing that always interests me is the, the geometry that they applied to those structures, right? Uh-huh. Where, there was, yeah. where there was the golden mean. Um, they, they all seem to follow like basically the same uh, geometry, whether it's the temples, the ancient temples in uh, Egypt or the cathedrals in Europe. Uh-huh. They, someone who, people that built those temples and churches seem to know more about uh, this type of architecture that is generally known to the public right now. Yeah, there, so when you look at the geometry, you can split it into two major sections. Right? You can, there is the numerical side of it, mm-hmm. which is calculating building, building using some number system. Or there is the geometric side. This is this, the kind of golden mean side, where you don't actually need the numbers. You just need proportional relationships of elements to one another. Um, so it, there is a humanity has always used nature as a reference because nature is a really good builder. Yeah. It integrates materials. Well, it manages to build living structures. It manages to, um, deal with structures that are in a state of decay. And there as different fields of study, geometry, physics, mathematics emerged. A lot of the early forms were looking at nature as the reference, even now in modern algorithms, like they're looking at fractals that happen, like as our, scientific reach has expanded, the way in which we observe geometry and nature has also expanded. So in, in trying to emulate their creator, it seems like humanity has taken this approach that the world created around them must have some sensible order to it. And geometry and patterns were some of the first things that they could start to observe. Through that, they started to develop ways to repeat it so it's very simply you could take something and cut it in half and cut it in half infinitely or double it and double it in perpetuity the other direction right as you try and reconcile materials and geometry like if you take a pile of sand for example right you just like pile it up this way the angle at which the sand falls is going to be exactly the same in santiago chile as it's going to be in moscow russia like the, the properties of the the natural world were something that like you could observe that angle when you look at very early architecture, early architecture geometrically is dealing with gravity through materials and balancing it, usually using either water for levels or geometric breaks, which allow you to build in modules. So the idea is that if you can take something at a small scale and understand its geometric relationships, say like letter size, if you can, if you can get the geometry of this, you can do this times 10 and the building allows you to enlarge this because you're not doing, it's not numerical. When you deal with numbers, it's actually a lot harder to build. Builders and architects really didn't start dealing with numbers heavily. I think really until around the enlightenment around like the 18th century that this really came into a numerical exercise. Um, Most early architecture that I've seen and that was canonized. Vitruvius did kind of the better job of canonizing it in Europe. Um, he was looking at 
proportions and numeric proportions. So how you break things down into thirds, into quarters, into halves, into eighths, into the gold, you know, if you break it into the golden ratio, you go in either direction of, you know, 0.618 or 1.618. It, it just gives you a system to be able to make your next move so that the whole building retains the same logic. So Da Vinci's measuring the human body and he's looking like proportionately, like what is, what are the proportional breakdowns of a human body and how can I apply that to a building? So if you take, you take your face, like your eyeballs are generally halfway in your skull, from the bottom of your chin to the center of your eyes and, and from the center of your eyes to the top of your head, that's a half on average. On average, right? Right. You can break your face into thirds also. If you put your thumb underneath your chin and you put your index finger under your nose, that's about one third of the front of your face. As you move up, you're going to get to the bridge of the uh, brow. And from the ridge of the brow, you'll get to the top of the hairline. That last little distance at the top is usually one eyeball width on end. So everything has an internal logic. And instead of arbitrarily just taking two trees and stringing something across it, when people were making a building that had some meaning to it, they wanted every part of the building to be imbued with the type of meaning and patterning and geometry, irrespective of the proportion that you use starts to do that. So do you think that logic was applied to the, the ancient cathedrals in Europe? Yes. And there's, there are, there are some records of how, um, of how the disputes around cathedrals worked because in a lot of ways, the people who pay for buildings want things to be more simple because they're less expensive. So if you work out proportions that are easier, it allows the building to move faster. When they were constructing the Duomo in Milan, there are arguments over like, are we going to use, I think it was, are we going to use a two to three ratio um, or are we going to use a trifold ratio? And the trifold was, it was more complicated it introduced uneven intervals, um, and it w this was a debate. This was, th this was a, a way for the builders to exercise what they thought was the greatest level of meaning also conveyed through sacrifice. You know, if, if the building is in some way harder or more mystical to build, and the people around it look and just marvel at it, it creates the greater effect of dwarfing the people who are walking into the church, which is the whole purpose of the church, is to make you feel very, very little in a big, vast universe to which you don't have any handle on, so you better behave. <laughs> Otherwise, this, you know, this, the big entities that made this building are going to come crashing down on you. Well, that makes sense. And, and I believe from what you told me, the, the same proportions as, as what you apply to your photography, right? I, yeah, it, so the, the whole system as it's been, as I learned it, um, is called dynamic symmetry. Um, and what it does is it links, a, it, it links a geometric relationship between particular types of rectangles. So if you start with a square, which is you know, unit one by one, right. and you draw a diagonal to the square, and you take a compass, and you take that diagonal, and you drop it down. Right? So you get a line that's longer than the baseline of the square. And you make that into a rectangle. That becomes what's called a root two rectangle. So the root system where you go root two, diagonal of the root two becomes a root three, root four. As you move out in space, after about root six, it starts to get a little ridiculous. Um, what that allows you to do is create a very special rectangle. This is a rectangle that when it is 
divided in half, it creates two identical rectangles that are vertical. So if you have a root two and you, and you draw the diagonal and you draw the line that intersects the diagonal at 90 degrees and drop a vertical, you get two baby root twos. It's the same thing. So people say like, well, why is that significant? It's like, well, as you start to do that, you create a building block that always fits within the other building blocks and it moves from vertical to horizontal. Again, who cares? Well, if you're trying to make something static move, whether it's a photograph or a painting, if you're trying to introduce some level of movement, the geometry lets you move. If you can move from vertical to horizontal, you've gone from sleeping to standing. That implies action. And you passed through a diagonal, which is the pause of movement. Right? You think about somebody running. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until the advent of the camera that we could finally see Moybridge you know, test Degas' theory that when a horse runs, all four hooves are off the ground. People argued about this endlessly until they could see it in a photograph. Degas, being the artist, understood it, um, but people didn't believe him. But when you would start to see the diagonal in action, you can transition from still to moving and back to still. So this is a system of geometric design that requires almost no understanding of numbers. I still have nightmares about calculus class. <laughs> I mean, it, it was a dreadful experience. The mathematical side of math never interested. I had no interest in it at all. Geometry, I thought was endlessly fascinating, but only in how you could apply it. Right. So geometry at a certain level, at a builder's level, what they tried to do was to get away from minutia calculations in numbers, which is really the arena of the mathematician, into divisible intervals, which becomes the arena of the builder or the architect. So that was the side that that's like the side of the conversation that I was more into. And as you study ancient temples, I mean, ranging ancient from thousands of years old to hundreds of years old, what you find is that every... There isn't a civilization that arbitrarily landed stuff in, on the ground. They, they put some thought into it. And whether it, was like, whether it was reflecting interval divisions that mapped the sky, as they said, like, all right, we're going to do this thing on the ground. We want this thing to have a relationship to what we've, what we've observed in the sky. So we're going to use those same intervals to break up the building so that the building echoes the sky. Right. Now, for the priests who understood it, they would have looked even more mystical because they were the only ones who could read it. Now, I think after studying building, it is a little less mystical. You know, if I showed, you know, if somebody shows you a script of Japanese and you don't read Japanese and they can make sense of this, it's like, oh, hey, how did you do that? Those are very weird squiggles that don't make any sense (laughs) in my world, but you all of a sudden, you managed to get on the train reading those squiggles. Building and design is just squiggle reading. It's different squiggle reading. And instead of the, the logic is the geometry. That's the sort of base of the conversation through certain symbols. So you find enough consistencies in ancient buildings and that people were all going for it that you can start to hypothesize that, like, was there a collective intelligence that was operating? Maybe. Maybe these aren't arbitrary buildings. You start measuring these things up and like they, they do have proportional relationships to each other, mm-hmm. to ones nearby, and to ones that are totally disconnected, like that they're on other continents and they have a commonality. Now, the, the thing that's common from, say, Europe or Asia to South America, where people say like, oh, how did these people, were they, it was a telepathic communication. 
I'm a little more practical on that side is that I would say the thing that exists in Asia that also exists in South America is nature. <laughs> the nature is, I mean, yes, you have different trees and different rocks, but the logic of nature has some beautiful and absolutely infinite consistencies so that you can observe how something grows. You can observe a growth pattern in Bolivia. You would probably find a similar growth pattern in Indonesia. So that's why, I mean, I love the idea that there were some outside influences that came down and just, you know, just spotted bolts of lightning into people and like connected a unified theory of belief and ancient architecture. It's a cool idea. I mean, I would, I think the comic book loving part of me would really like enjoy for that to be the, the, the way that it happened. And the fun part is we're, we're never really going to know. That's true. But I just wanted to take what was understood at least at a level that you could, you could appreciably work with and emulate and go from there. So it's like going back into the philosophy to a point. And then there's a point of departure where it's just like, you might believe one thing. I might believe another thing. I don't care just as long as the door swings. As long as it works. Exactly. Yeah. And the idea that nature is everywhere and that people utilize that, uh, you know, to build these structures. Um, I never heard anyone put it in those terms, but that, that makes a lot of sense because I'm sure ancient cultures lived in, in commune with nature, right? So that would, nature would be their teacher. So from that perspective, it makes a lot of sense. Cause you, I mean, in a lot of cases, it, it's not until say a, with some exception, because like all of this comes with caveats, but with some exception, there is a certain consistency to building out of slightly softer stone. Right. So whether you're doing something that was like an early form of an aggregate concrete or you're using um, you're using like a limestone base, something that had something that at one point had marine animals fossilized in it. There's a there's an it's easy to shape if somebody gives you. 5,000 years ago, a piece of granite, or they give you a piece of soft limestone and they say, make me something out of it, out of this. The logic of that material is going to lend itself to doing certain types of things. And I think that's why the, the consistency between step pyramids in Egypt and what I've seen in Central America, like there's a softness to that stuff there's a sort of crumbly quality. It's not all built out of, I mean, there are things that are built out of granite, which is another mind numbing exercise. Um, but there's an example that I learned about through one of my drawing teachers was a, um, a historian who ran himself into a world of trouble. His name was Davidovich and he, not Filipovich though, <laughs> closely That's close. related. That's close. Um, but what he, he was not an Egyptologist, but he had a few theories about the way that the pyramids were constructed which were really not popular with Egyptologists because yes. the, 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 the running thought is that um, the pyramids were either flat out constructed by aliens or some, someone affiliated with Tom Cruise and Scientology. There's, there's that camp, <laughs> right? He's a God now. Yeah. So, it, you know, he has one of the smaller sub temples in the back, but you know, if, if you're not fully signed on for that theory of it, um, the other portions of it that look at the construction of the pyramids, they'd say like, you know, the stones were so perfectly cut. These guys were masterful cutters. So I thought like, okay, let's, let's see what Davidovich has to say about this. And one of the things that you understand from stone cutting is that 
if you had old stone cutting techniques at the time, you could cut about an eighth of an inch of a huge block like that in a day, right? An eighth of an inch like that, mm, that. So if you were going to do an entire pyramid, it wouldn't take you a few thousand years. It would take you a few million years to do. So he looked at it in a much more pragmatic sense. And he said, okay, let's take one of these blocks and see, you know, when you have these blocks fit perfectly together, what else fits perfectly well together? And one of them is concrete. And the way that concrete works really well, which you'd see on any highway construction, any building construction, is that you make a box and you pour a liquid into it. And the liquid hardens. And the liquid, depending on how thin it is, hardens exactly to the size of the shape that it was in. So if you make one block and then you put up three sides around it and you pour another block, that second block is going to fit perfectly into the other one. Because mm -hmm. when they open up the pyramid blocks, they're not polished on the inside. It's not as if there's no cut marks. It's, it doesn't have a circular cut. It doesn't have a linear cut. Like they, they just fit seamlessly. So two answers. It could be magic, which again is like great. I love, love magic. Love magic yeah. construction. That's fantastic. Or it was some sort of pour. So the Egyptologist, no, it's nonsense. There's no way. So his second portion to that was when you use stone, that is a material which has settled over millions of years. When you have something that has marine fossils in it, for example, what you tend to get are layers, right? You get sedimentary layers. It's like layers of sand settled one on top of the other. And things that died in those layers tend to be oriented in the way in which they were locked into that stone. So occasionally you'll find things, you know, at funny angles, but there is some sort of consistency of like lots of little shells would all be going like this. Now, if you mix something like concrete or pancake batter, the thing gets a big, they're all over the place. It's like a confetti just locked in space because it was mixed quickly and then it dried as it cured. It didn't all settle back out flat. So when, apparently when they did a cut of one of the stones of the pyramid that he was studying, he didn't find that everything was in neat little layers. He found that it was all over the place. He said, this looks a lot more like a concrete not exactly the Portland concrete that we use, or the later, you know, from the Egyptians that was later developed and credited to the Romans, who probably stole it at some level from the Greeks. But th th this, per this performance or this behavior of the material revealed something about the way in which it came to be, which was totally contrary to the miraculous way that it ha that it would have that it had been told on how blocks were rolled over logs and they were taken from thousands of miles away. And, you know, his whole thing was, look, if you're going to build an aggregate building, you're going to build a building that's made out of powder. What's a sensible place to do that? In the middle of the desert where you have an infinite supply of sand. There's no way you're going to deplete Egypt of sand. You look at where the pyramids are and we're like every pyramid that I've been to in Egypt, it sits in a huge pile of sand. It's like sandy rock that's just around it. So his thing was like, well, yeah, they built it in a, fairly safe, in a fairly sensible place because they just needed to get the water from the Nile out to the sand, which is easier than getting the sand out to the water. So it, things like this, I, I do enjoy when someone comes up with a, an approach that demystifies the way in which something was done. That's interesting. I'm, I've never heard that, like that explanation or that argument for how the pyramids were, were made. 
I forget the name of his book off the top of my head, but it's on Amazon. Nobody wants it. It'll probably cost you $12 and you can, you can get it. Yeah. Have you heard of uh, Robert Schock, Dr. Robert Schock? He That's went and he went and did analysis on the Sphinx and he looked at, uh, he looked at the weather patterns on the, on the, on the Sphinx. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and the way the weather patterns um, were, it kind of went like this which means it, it was water that eroded it. If, if it was, it, I believe the Sphinx is limestone. If it was uh, wind erosion, you, you would see like, uh, there's usually a hard layer, soft layer, hard layer. So the idea is if it's eroded by wind, the soft layers would be more eroded than, than the harder layers, right? I see. And you would definitely see that. But that's not the way the Sphinx eroded. So his analysis was it was due to um, water. And when he, when he went and did the uh, detailed analysis as to how long it would take for that or how much water it would take to make that kind of erosion, he, I think he came up to like something like 25,000 years old, the Sphinx had to be in order for that, that much water erosion to occur. And as soon as he came up with that, he basically got thrown out of Egypt. <laughs> so, yeah. And, and when he was telling that story, that's when I realized that, you know, scientists um, make a big to do about the fact that they're rooted in logic and science. Um, but if, if you try to take someone's livelihood away, like if you're an Egyptologist and your whole net worth is built around you being an expert in that field and someone comes along and say, well, actually, that's not how it works. So you're really not an expert on anything. Um, they have a tendency to hold on to what they believe in and discredit the people with the new information. I mean, that seems to be the f- how science rolls. Yeah, I mean, it, it is an uphill battle because the people who are involved, the people who have always been involved in building are very powerful. I mean, the vast majority of significant buildings made in the last thousand years were all made culturally by the most powerful institutions of those civilizations. This was not like some slouchy guy who was like, you know what? I got this cool idea. I'm going to build this big <laughs> monument in the backyard. Like this, this doesn't happen. These are, these are monuments to, to Kings, to civilizations, to conquerings. I mean, this is like, this is a no BS. Can you curse on this show or no? Same yeah. Time. Okay. <laughs> so it, it is, it is really a, a, a no joke enterprise where all of the resources of a culture, really get poured into these things yeah like the pyramids i mean there must have been the whole culture behind it for hundreds thousands of years who knows how long um you know going back to what you talked about uh looking at ancient architecture from a numbers perspective or from a proportions perspective that proportions angle seems to make a lot more sense to me I think I showed you a book once that uh, was this huge two-volume book on uh, the Temple of Carmack. Yes. And, it, and it was all numbers, equations. And I remember spending like two, like two or three days just trying to get past the second page, thinking, I, I don't fucking understand any of this. But when you look at it from a proportional perspective, it, it's a lot easier to comprehend and to understand. Yeah, the, the proportional... This is where, like, my... When I started building uh, seriously in New York... Um, the thing that emerges is that if the design is too complicated, it becomes to a certain extent unbuildable because you cannot build something that is a hundred percent prototype every single time you build. It is ridiculously expensive 
I mean, like the difference would be, there's a really great example that was given by the architect Frank Gehry, right? He did like Bilbao and Guggenheim was the sort of famous bent yeah. steel building. He's got his, you know, 80 years, 80 year career on other stuff. But what he said is like, like if you take a single, you take a single sheet of metal, right? It's a dollar a square foot. You bend it once. Now it's $2 a square foot. If you bend it twice, it's now $10 a square foot. So if you start dealing with really complex geometry, the costs become like NASA level. I mean, you'd be making buildings that were billions of dollars, which is what NASA and military budgets are because they're building these like one-off prototypes that have very irregular geometries. So that when you build a temple, for example, like the, one of the basic layout techniques that you use in construction, still, I mean, still, when you square a building, is a three, four, five triangle, right? And three, four, hypotenuse is five, and like that yeah. lets you square something, and you usually try and land the largest one. So you can use a tape measure to do it, right? That's, like, that's how we do it nowadays. You tapes and lasers and things like that. Um, but back in the day, it was well recorded that aside from using <clears throat> fixed templates, like a mason carrying fixed templates would carry proportional templates, but they would use ropes with knots, right? So you could just take a rope that had knots at three, four, five intervals. And when you wrap those around stakes, you, you can't but get a right, a right angle. So it allows you in space to deal with it. It doesn't matter how big the building is. Right. The building could be 100 feet. It could be 20 feet. It makes no difference. So if you're building across the floor and up the wall, if you can maintain proportional relationships, one, it allows you to build square, which is a big help when you don't want the building to collapse. For ancients, it was, it was, a, it was a greater significance because they didn't have, there was no welding. There, were, there was very little joinery. Like stones weren't slotted together the way that woodwork was. It was a, it was a house of cards. So like if that thing is not like plumb and true, and old masons, they were good. They were really good with very basic materials. Um, like they needed this stuff to work. And you're dealing with someone, you're dealing with a workforce who is completely uneducated. I mean, formal education didn't even exist at this point. So like you, can't, you don't have time to run them through basic mathematics classes in order to do this. They're not out there with calculators and things. You've got one guy on site who might know how to do this. And the rest of it, you got to say, Jimmy, Go square that building for me. Here's the rope. Like it's it's that's the type of relationship that has to get this stuff built. Right. Okay. Interesting. Um, I, I thought I thought maybe we move on to um, another discussion now. Like you've gone through at least two or three major career changes, um, and I guess the most recent one from like to a photographer and to an artist. And you had mentioned like the process of transitioning from apprentice to a master at, and how that accelerated your learnings. Can you tell us about like how you did that? And I know we've talked about this a lot in, in the past, of how you became an artist and this process you went through to get that. Mm -hmm. and, and it wasn't, it wasn't like a linear process at all. It kind of went all over the place and uh, painful at times. And from what you told me before, you could, you couldn't have done it by yourself. Like there are people that you relied on along the road to give you information and kind of guidance. Um, but can, can you get into that? Like if someone wants to make a 
of a change in their life to be more creative or follow their heart's desire, whatever that may mean. Um, what was your recipe? So I had a very naive approach to this. And part of that, which I, I Justin might be able to relate to this, is that growing up in middle-class New Jersey, if I wanted to be an accountant, if I wanted to work on Wall Street, if I wanted to open a landscaping business, there were people around me who had done this. So they had advice or approaches to doing this. I didn't meet my first professional artist, someone who made their entire living producing art until I was in university. And actually to like transfer to NYU. So I, my understanding of like, I want to be an artist was that like, I like drawing and painting. I'm better at that than I am at anything else. But I actually have no idea how people live as artists. I would go to museums and I would say like, all right, somebody's backing this. Like it's, it's possible. You know, you could also be an astronaut. Had no idea how to do that either. Fortunately, I didn't have to do both in one lifetime. Right. Um, but my, my approach was that I had to get near people who were doing it. So it was like, it like when I was in high school, I didn't really think about it. I just, I, I drew, you know, I drew and I did well and won a little high school awards and all that stuff, but it was still useless because school was pushing me towards you know, business degree or something. And I, you know, I did a year at school and, uh, in Connecticut thinking I was going to do that. And it made me miserable, absolutely miserable. Um, so I applied, I, a friend of mine from high school, you know, weird connection. Um, he, he was a year older than me and he went to NYU and he was like, man, Adam, you're an artist. Like you should, like you should be in New York. I thought, Mike, that's probably pretty good advice. So actually me and my roommate at the time, we both applied. Um, I only applied to one school for transfer, which was stupid, but I got in. So as a sophomore, I switched to New York, and that was the first start in getting myself around people who were doing what I wanted to do. So like step one was, if you want to do something, like if you want to be a professional like sailboat racer, whatever it is you want to do, it, it's helpful to get to the geographical space where that occurs. You can do it remotely. I'm not saying like every artist needs to move to New York. They don't. It's a, and the landscape is a lot different now with the internet in a way that it was not when I was, I mean, I finished school without a computer or a phone. So it was a different time 20 years ago on that. But I had to get to New York. And my approach in this was, if I don't know, I can probably find someone who does. And I'm going to try and get myself to be around them with enough frequency that I can learn things from them. So working became a really good excuse to spend time around really smart people who were doing this, the things that I wanted to do in a way that like, it's a little hard to say like, Hey, like you have a cool job. Can I just come hang out with you? It's <laughs> <laughs> like people in, in general won't let you do that. They want like, you can come do something. So my approaches were to either work with them, or to photograph them. 
Because if you also say like, hey, can I come stare at you for two hours? They're like, no, it's weird. <laughs> but if you're going to come take pictures and like give them something useful at the end of it, they'll let you hang out for weeks on end. That's brilliant. So that's a brilliant idea. And, and so all the shoots that you did in Venice with the boat builders, um, that that all came out of that idea, like to be, you wanted to be around creative people and let's, let's, let's document this while we're doing it and give them some of the value at the same time. Right. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's an exchange. Having looked at, I read a ton of artist biographies, right. And what I was looking for was how did somebody go from being like, little Mikey in Florence to being Michelangelo. Like he was a, he was a thing, mm -hmm. but he wasn't always a thing. There was a period of time where he was unemployed, where he didn't have a patron. He didn't have, he didn't do squat for eight months at a clip. I'm trying to figure out how did he go from being like within his family to getting himself into a position where he could establish himself as an artist. And he did it through working, working under or working in community with people who were more advanced than him, both artistically and also in the humanities. In the Medici household, they had a world of intellectuals that he got into. And he learned because when he, when he did his early work, um, his early commissions, the, the older guys, the academics, they'd say like, well, what's the story behind your sculpture? And he's like, well, what do you mean? What's the story? There's no story. I'm, I have no interest in the story. I'm making, I'm trying to do the figure. And they're like, no, you have to have like, there's got to be a mythology. People want to believe in what you're doing. They need, they need to know the story. And he's like, well, I don't know any stories. And they, so they, they encouraged him to learn a bit about what was behind the work that he was making or the work that he was looking at. You know, he was kind of looking at it in one dimension and it allowed him to see it in another. And when people do this for you, when they allow you to see things in a multi-dimensional way, I mean, that just, it opens up a world of possibility that was, it's right here. It's just right here, but it's completely inaccessible. Right. I could, there is no way I could have ever figured any of that out on my own. It was from working with people and asking a million questions. So, yeah, so I'm, I'm glad that you said, um, you know, that because of the internet now, like you don't, you don't have to go straight to New York City or places that are, are somewhat inaccessible for, for large groups of people because um, you can find so many groups online to communicate with that, that can help you. And uh, um, I think that that's uh, very important in, um, in this day and age. I think it's great. I mean, the, the resources that are available at an entry point now to people, um, I, like I've had last, I think it was last year, I had a young woman from New Zealand contact me because she had been doing some blacksmithing and she wanted to go to Japan. I mean, it's like she's writing to the U.S. to try and find out a way to get to Japan as an apprentice, a foreigner, and a woman into Japan. And I thought, this is brilliant. This is something like I was looking at Japanese books and trying to extrapolate as much information as I could. And there's, a, it gets to a certain point where like, if you're into food, like, you can only watch so many chefs' tables. Like you have to actually <laughs> touch and taste the stuff. So on the one hand, it opens up a level of accessibility, and the internet lends itself very well to things which are visual, 
or auditory, right? It's really good, I think, for musicians. And it can be very good for people who are designing at a visual level. The area where it falls short is in the physical practice because there are, are, there are things that you have to physically do. And I'm not like muscle physically, but you have to, your hands or you, and your eyes need to physically coordinate where you want to, you got to see how somebody does something. Most of the building tradition that I learned, it's not written down. And if you had to watch a show on it, I don't think you'd make it through. I mean, Anthony, you said you read two pages of that book and fell asleep. The temple uh, book. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it, a lot of it is like, it's engaging to do. It is devastatingly boring to watch. To read about. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and the other bit is that most of the people who know how to do this stuff really well, they haven't written books yet. For all the mastery books and all of the like, learn this and become a genius in 55 days and 10,000 hours. Now it's up to 60,000 hours. A lot of this stuff is written by people who they might credit themselves in becoming experts, becoming experts, but they're not, they don't do anything. Tim Ferriss doesn't do shit. Like he doesn't do anything. He's an, he's an entertainer. He's a good entertainer. But yeah. the, the, the presupposed expertise is not, it's not there. The expertise is in marketing and entertainment, which is, which is excellent. Um, and maybe accessibility. So it has a place. The, the area it gets really confused is when that stuff starts getting mixed with actual expertise. You know, I, I think of, I think someone who I, admire and who had a really rough go at is somebody like Tony Bourdain um, because he was a chef. He wasn't a Michelin star chef, but like he was a chef. He knew how kitchens worked. He knew how to cook. Like he understood it at a level from the doing side. Like he was a, he would have been like a good carpenter. He didn't run the most, you know, the most successful construction outfit in the world, but it was good enough that when he stepped into other people's kitchens, he wasn't stepping in as a journalist. He was stepping in, as a, an equal in some regard. He was a peer. He was someone who could probably pick up a knife and get up to speed on that. Yeah, definitely a peer. And so that, I think, that, that's where, like, the internet and the accessibility, that, I think, is it's, it's spectacular for, for younger people. I mean, it's not even younger people. For people who want to get into it, you don't have to do the way that I did it. This has taken me this is taking me the better part of 20 years. People say like, oh, well, you're really young. It's like, I mean, I don't know. I started doing art when I was 11. I'm nearly 40. So, I mean, that's you're 30 years full on. And I'm just kind of getting to what, like, to levels that I'm starting to feel satisfied with. And I don't think that's necessary. I spend a lot of time flopping and flailing around. Because uh, it's because of New Jersey. People, they just don't do anything. It's, I mean, I don't want to rag on the whole place, but like most people, I imagine most people in, in with a few exceptions kind of end up doing like what's around them. And I didn't want to do what was around me. You know, if I wanted to be a ballerina, like I, New Jersey probably would have been a really tough place to be because places don't encourage stuff that's outside of their realm of familiarity or expertise because it's risky. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and just to continue the rag on, on New Jersey, I, um, <laughs> I, I left about half a lifetime ago and, um, like when I was like 17 
And um, someone reached out to me over Facebook um, from that time. And they just, you know, just said, hey, and everything. And I, I started looking over at their pictures to see what was going on in their life. And, um, and it just, it just brought back the memories of like East, Rut or, um, East Rutherford and um, just this dark, dingy, depressing, everyone's smoking and they're all just out cold all the time. And it's just, and I'm, I'm like looking at them like, oh man, like, like there, there's just no, I, I just don't remember it being uh, that dirty. And, and then you look back at it and you're just like, you're like, it was that dirty. Like, wow. It's like, no wonder it just, it just stinks when you're driving through it. I mean, um, again, not to rag New Jersey. I guess I was ragging New Jersey. It's I mean, it, it's a depressing place. It's the only place that everyone in the world loves to hate. I took a taxi <laughs> in New York City, like it must have been seven, eight years ago. The taxi driver, he was from Uganda. And he said, where, where, are you, where were you born? I said, New Jersey. And he goes, ooh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and like, he was just telling me, like, he, he left a war-torn region. I'm thinking like, Jesus, and this guy is like, sorry, man, you're from Jersey? That's rough. Like, <laughs> so it's, its reputation does, uh, it does precede itself. And it, not to say that there are not beautiful places in, in New Jersey, which I, I go to and I love, but yeah, for artistic development, it was it's it not just limiting. yeah, it, and again, it's not just that it's, it's dirty. It's it's the mindset, like because because you're because we were bringing up about the accountants and the the adults were all accountants and lawyers and doctors and stuff. They had this uh, this weird mindset about uh, finances being first, and then and then a couple of other things, and then their family. And it's like uh, and and there was always this. It was just weird. It was just a weird place to grow up. And it's at a way like I understand it. My my father's side of the family, they were yeah. Italian immigrants. They came over before and after World War Two. I mean, this was, they, they did not have money. They lived in a two family house, you know, two brothers who married two sisters. They split family house in Newark. They didn't have a lot of money, money, like survival was a very serious concern for them. And I can understand that when you grow up in an environment where your base needs are not met or barely met, your focus for your children and for future generations is like, hey, just make sure that you get this far so that you don't have these problems. Hmm. You know, it's not a, I would, I don't go around recommend, recommending that people become artists. This is a colossal liability. This is not like, I don't have, I have a girlfriend and a cat. Like, you know, we don't have, we don't have kids. We don't have, you know, 2.5 kids and two cars. Like there's a, there are a number of, I would say, constraints that lay themselves on certain careers because the development of them, it's not linear and it's not insured. Hmm. I mean, accountant's not a bad way to go. You make a good, you make a good living. You'll come out of school, oh. you'll be employable like almost instantly. No, I disagree. Totally. I mean, you're, you're probably right. Maybe 20 years ago, but I mean, in five years, there's, there's not even going to be accountants. Uh, it's all going to be automated. So, um, that's kind of that's the that's the terrifying thing is that they've been sold this thing. Hey, you be accountant, you get out, and then you'll and th that job's not going to be there in five years. I yeah, you're probably right. I mean, there are yeah. th the the expectations of that, of that's career kind of jobs in places. You know, the Swiss postman who's a Swiss postman for forty years. The, on. Yeah. And that's sort of the thing is like, um, you're, I think that you need a, I, and, and this is just a critique of me. I think you need to update that. I think everyone needs to become an artist to protect themselves for what's coming. Um, in terms of automation, truck driving jobs are not going to be there. Uh, all these repetitive jobs that we used to just rely on and, and, you know, you can make 50, 60, $70,000 a year doing 
that stuff's kind of disappearing. But what can protect you is is doing a job in creation, and that doesn't just mean just being an artist. I mean, I, my brother is a landscaper, and um, but uh, he does he does it in, in a very artistic way. It can't it can't be replicated by a machine. And um, I, I think that this is the future. Becoming an artist is the future. And um, if you're wondering where all the artists are, um, they're all in Hollywood making those uh, making those comic book movies. So it's uh -huh. like the jobs will be there long after uh, accounting jobs will be there. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I think it, uh, it I think makes you a lot of sense. Yeah, you position yourself much better than you think. <laughs> yeah, There's a lot of people struggling. It's not, I mean, I, one of the things that I got, one of the things that allowed me to work in construction in a way that was more successful early on than I had anticipated, I certainly had, didn't, this, I wasn't aware of this until later, was that as an artist, I was fine building things out of order. I didn't need to follow a sequence because you could develop mm. different parts at different rates in a way that people who did production work, guys who did like union work, like they wanted to do step one through five in that order. And if you disrupted that, it was a problem. And I was mm. like, well, I think it's actually kind of interesting. Like, let's see, let's figure this out. Let's see how, how far can we push this exercise to do it kind of out of order, but still arrive at something that was built. And, and I think that's the, the flexibility um, where automation struggles to adapt. It gets really good at doing a few things very well, but then when you have to reprogram the machine, it's like, whoo, yeah. you know, deep tool reset up. That's the, that's the difference. That's the thing that people aren't, um, that's the disconnect in, in terms of being an artist and, and, um, and uh, intelligence is that is is the idea of you had to think through that. There's no thought process with the union guys. They go step one, two, three, four, five, and if something messes up, they they just go all right. Well, then we can't do it. But you say, wait, hold on. Like let's think about this for a second. Then to me, that's what creativity is. That's what art is. Uh, to me, um, is is the ability to think through problems. Uh -huh. And and that's what makes you indispensable. That's what makes you a linchpin, and um, and very helpful. So it seems like you took the perfect career choice then, Adam. Yeah, I think you did. <laughs> well, th thank you. I, uh, I wish I ran into you guys 10 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> hey, let's, let's talk about um, creativity now and how to nurture it, which has been a big part of your transition into an artist. How were you able to like tap into that? Or, and do you, what's the best way for you to tap into creativity? Is it just, you have to be in a routine daily and it, it sort of happens or you have to get in a certain mindset? Um, okay. There, I guess you could, you could probably break it into a few different, you could break it into a few different types, right? So there are, the one thing that creativity uniformly needs is space. And that could be space in terms of time space or space in terms of physical space. It needs room to grow. It needs to not be doing other stuff, which is really, really hard. This is the part, a lot of people are very uncomfortable not doing something. You know, the, the idea in which an artist sits and stares off into space and is doing nothing is like it needs that nothing space in order for things to happen. Um, this is something that as I've worked with people who are coming out of corporate environments trying to facilitate creativity, they can't not do something. 
It's they're hard. like on their phone or on a computer. I got to be doing, got to be doing. Creativity is a not doing. It's, it's, it is, there is an open, there's an open process to it that needs a lot of nothing happening around it in order for it to develop and grow. So that is, I think, one portion that at, it's why creativity works well as a kid, because I didn't have anything to do. <laughs> you know, like you could even be in school and not be doing anything. You could be staring off into space and doodling in the side of a notebook. And you had eight hours of unadulterated creative time where maybe you should have been paying attention in biology, but I was not, I was developing and exploring ideas for me visually and sketching that allowed for that to grow. So I think I actually set a fairly good accidental precedent as a young person, always drawing and sketching that started to carve out time for things. And so that set, that set up an early behavior I wasn't really aware of, right? That just, the wheels were in motion and, I, and a number of external uh, environmental circumstances allowed for that. You know, my town was not invaded by barbarians. You know, we did not have like any major threat. You know, the first thing to evaporate under threat is creativity. Right. Your village is getting burned down. You know, you're not making creative anything. You're just trying to survive. Um, then I think as I move in, as I moved into it as an after university, like once creativity was sort of on me to make creative time, um, I think the parameters for understanding how it works um, are also how to put this. A lot of people who have an interest in creativity also have an interest in productivity. And these two are not actually aligned because creativity is, there is no guarantee of productivity. You are guaranteed some level of floundering that you will absolutely do. And I think as an artist, it becomes very clear throughout your education that most of what you do ends up in the garbage. And that's normal. That is actually the way the process goes. It's very low yield. We are not farmers. If farmers yielded as much fruit as we did products as creatives, we would starve to death. You know, the trajectory of creativity is that it is really useless for a period of time. And then whoop, it becomes very, like all of a sudden it becomes very important. It's not like a, a slow, steady incline. It's kind of nothing until all of a sudden Michelangelo produces the David and it's like, boop, like it pops up. There's no, there's, it's not a, it is not any sort of gradual uptick. You do a lot of useless shit until you do something really good that is of value to somebody else. But those types of quotients are things that don't reconcile themselves well with the working world. The working world likes performance. They like good little worker bees who put out A quality products and creativity is just this weird entity that resists all of that stuff. It doesn't work that way. So in that process, like you have to have a completely different definition of a, or not even in your vocabulary, a failure. Like when you go through that process, like you say, you're going to have a lot of things you're going to throw in the garbage, but you have to look at that not as failure, but as a step in the process, right? And, and that yeah. must be difficult too. You know, the, I looked this up a while ago because I, I had heard this. 
I, I'd spoken at South by Southwest a few times, and like this concept of failure came, it comes up very regularly. In art school, this was not something we discussed. Like we weren't really, failure was not a topic that was addressed. Like no one was really worried about it. Hmm. Um, we didn't concern ourselves with it. But failure as like a concept became something that I was made aware of in talking about the artistic process with people who weren't in creative fields. And they were like very, very concerned about failure. And it's like, well, let's look at failure. I mean, let's look at it from a historical standpoint. We're like the, the origins of the word are, from what I found, they're heavily agrarian. But the failure for crop to produce, this is like where this word started to come into use. That doesn't describe the artistic process at all. Right. Because you don't actually know what your end product is in a lot of ways. It's not like the wheat harvest didn't yield what it was supposed to, so it failed. You might be stopping the thing in process so that you planted the tree, it's growing, it's not yielding fruit yet, and you're screaming at the tree for not yielding fruit. And it's like, it's not old enough. It's going to take it five years to get up to speed before it starts generating any fruit. And people are screaming at the seedling in the ground saying like, you're a failure. And it's like, no, you're applying the wrong process. You're applying the wrong evaluative process to a creative process. And when you do that, the whole thing would look like a failure. Soon to nuts, it would never not be a failure. So there, the, the, the frustrations that people have with failure um, I think really stem from ideas of like approval, grading, success, because things that are like things that are defined academically or professionally as successes, it's usually someone in some way patting you on the head for having done a good job based on their criteria. I mean, even you win a Nobel Prize, it's, it's those guys telling you, you've done a good job based on what we think is valuable. Right, so you're you're up against somebody else. I always sort of resented the idea in school. Um, I remember I had an argument with a professor who I'm still friendly with at NYU about his grading system, where he didn't give A's, and he gave like reasons for like what what you would have to do to perform in his class to get an A. And when I read it, I said anyone who could perform A level work in your class is an idiot for having taken this class because they already know the material well enough. What are you here for? <laughs> the whole exercise is to trying to get into an arena where people are experimenting outside of their regular realm of knowledge, comfort. It, it's to expand that. So, so a, a level of non-yield or failure, like shit that doesn't work, you actually want to see that. You want to see them jumping for something and falling short of it by design. If they get it right every time, then what do, I could go to a fifth grade math class and just wail on fifth graders. I would destroy all of them. I'm infinitely smarter than any fifth grader. I mean, almost. There's probably a few floating around in there. But like, you could just plow through fifth grade academics. Are you a genius? No, you're an idiot for being in a fifth grade class. It doesn't make any sense. And a lot of the, like, the grading systems and the way that like, people in SATs and, um, and AP classes and like, all these grading things where people, like friends of mine who are like, straight-A students and they went into Ivy League schools. And like, then you'd watch them in life and you'd be like, wow, that's what that is? Like, that's how that mm. flushes out? Like, it's, I just didn't find 
I don't find a tremendous amount of merit in being able to satisfy the requirements that somebody else lays out as a criterion for success. To me, that is an unexamined view as to what is going to be successful or fulfilling to an individual. And that's why a lot of the people I've worked with or worked under, they're kind of anomalies. Like the master builder I worked under, he got his GED. You know, he dropped, he dropped out of high school. He got into Columbia for mathematics. So he's like not an idiot. And then he dropped out of Columbia. He tried art school and dropped out of that too. He is brilliant. I mean, I've worked with him for the better part of 15 years. He's absolutely brilliant. And I'm, I've watched him run circles around Ivy League educated architects. And it's like, well, they all got straight A's and they got the scholarships. And like on paper, they're higher performing to somebody else's criterion. But for doing what they actually want to do, which is make buildings, he's much better at it than they are. And that's where I think the whole concept of failure is like, if you just want students who get like good grades, it's just a glorified head pat. And all they do is get good at answering questions that people ask them. But you ask them like, why don't you come up with something on your own? And like, they're at a standstill. They don't know what to do. Yeah, it goes back to the, um, the, the thing I was talking about with not being able to think. Um, if you're just doing whatever it takes to get that, that A, and, and you know, when, when I was in, uh, even when I was in college, um, I was a history, or a history major, and um, a history professors come up and tell you exactly what they wanted to, you, you to write about, exactly how they wanted it to be written. And um, if you strayed just a little bit from what they wanted, that's when your grades started to drop, so you would just stop doing that. Mm-hmm. And that's not thinking. That's not a, that's not creation. That's not creative. And, um, and then, so when you do get the opportunity, somebody puts you in a position where you have to think, um, that's where the whole failure thing starts, uh, like expressing itself because they're like, like, Oh no, I'm a failure. I can't do what they want me to do. And it's like, it's like, you're kind of like saying that it's all flipped around. It's like, you know, this is your opportunity to, to do whatever you want, you know? And, um, and you know, it's kind of really sad. I think, I think you're spot on. I mean, it, it brings up the idea that, there has probably been a, a confluence of what is vocational education and a, an education that is much more philosophical or exploratory in its roots that have gotten merged in modern university. I mean, education as, a, as an entity was something that historically was reserved for very special people. Mm-hmm. And whether they were anointed special or born into a special situation or got themselves through to education by special circumstance, education was not for everyone. It was a very, very small group of people who got it. And they were never judged, I don't think, I don't imagine, I could be wrong on this, an academic historian could probably correct me on this, but like, I don't think the philosophical output of someone who went through a philosophy program was really a measure of practical success. That wasn't really a criterion to which they would measure that, in many cases, probably a gentleman's education. That wasn't it. Then when education sort of merged with an, a, an output, right? When education needed, when you, had, when you had a population of people who were going to be voting, for example, right? Like they needed to be educated in a way. And you get, like, you combined a vocational school with a school of philosophy in a way that at a lot of levels is totally incompatible. 
You know, people will say that like the least practical education, uh, least practical college degrees would be, you know, things like creative writing, right? Useless. Philosophy, useless. What are you going to do? Be a philosopher? You know, artist, useless. You've just declared yourself being unemployed. Now, I think actually the weird thing is having worked with a lot of commercial companies, the three things that every commercial company could use are an artist, a philosopher, and a creative writer. Because the philosopher can figure out what is it that you do? Who are you? What is the thing that you're trying to get at? What is your purpose? That is a, that is a philosophical question that most companies can't answer well because they don't employ philosophers. They employ marketing people who might have a minor in philosophy. Then once they figure out what the fuck that is that they do, they can't communicate it in a persuasive way. So they could use a creative writer. They could use someone from a linguistic standpoint to communicate what their philosophical purpose is. And then an artist to communicate it visually so that people who aren't hearing it can see it. So in a weird way, like I think the least unemployable versions, maybe, maybe this proves your point about you know, being an artist in a professional world, is that like these students are actually really useful. The medical tech, uh, can pro- a lot of that has probably become very automated. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. I think, um, I think the only thing that, that hinders that, uh, that analogy is, is postmodernism being, uh, being a big factor in, uh, in philosophy, which is, uh, which is like the, basically the rejection of thought. <laughs> but, um, but other than that, like a classical philosophy, then, then definitely. Yeah, that, that's pretty much what I was saying. I totally agree with that. So the, 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 like be, coming from a less of like a our artistic background, but more a corporate, it, it, this discussion is very interesting to me because in, in the corporate world, there is much more this idea of, of uh, success failure, especially in, you know, delivering products, delivering services, delivering projects, you know, are you on time? Are you on budget? Are you whatever? And, and within the, those processes, there is, uh, there is some room for creativity, but there still is at the end of the day that measured that were you successful or were, or were you not successful? But I, I guess for you being an artist, Adam, where, where that actually comes down, being successful or not successful is, you know, can you at the end of the month pay the rent being an artist? Yeah, I mean, there are, when, you, when you're working in a creative capacity, right, there are times for wild experimentation yes (laughs) and then there are times for production right so like if i'm delivering a commission to somebody this is not the time for me to totally explore new substrates and totally different techniques this is production time this is time where you should be more familiar and less you should be more risk averse to doing things you know I, i think an easy analogy is that like in in um in a lot of like martial arts trainings or boxing trainings anything that you spar in right you go through a learning period right this is your analogous university you you learn how to do stuff and you learn how to do stuff without dire consequences you don't like bare knuckle box to learn how to box it's just going to be all kinds of problems that emerge from that (laughs) you want to have you want to have gloves and you want to have headgear on in fact for the beginning part, you don't even want anybody punching you back. You just want to be the only one doing the punching so that you, you get it. And then little by little, you get eased into things like sparring, where it's like you are going to be 
experimental and learning in that process. That's a great area to get punched in the face a bunch of times, enough to know that stuff's starting to work and, stuff, and, and not working. It's, that's, that's a really good space to be learning in, to try new things and see how they work and how you can string these ideas together. Then when you have a fight, this is not experimentation time. This is like win time. There's, there's a very clear goal and objective that you'd like to arrive at in as much of one piece as possible. And then you go back to the gym and then you go back and you peel back these exercises. Sometimes you hear fighters talk about going back to fundamentals, going back to fundamentals of footwork, taking dance classes, do, you know, di doing different um, physical movements, yoga, breathing, things to return and reestablish foundational practices. The problem with the corporate world, what you're describing is that they're just always in fights. They got a fight schedule that's too, it's too severe. You can't have 30 fights in a year. You're going to burn out. There needs to be a, a sort of sequencing between dealing with foundational elements and experimental realm where you can start to see those expected and unexpected outcomes. And then a performance realm where you need to produce. And then you loop back. And it's, these are these fascinating cycles where as you go through it, you bring the lessons that you learned from the first like whole round of it to the second round so that you can actually start to anticipate problems. Where you, I mean, in corporate, like you can look at stuff and say like, hey, this is not going to work. We did this last time. That yeah. shit didn't work last time. We can learn from those lessons and apply them create creatively moving forward. It's just like the, the timetable for performance is set in a way that like company may not have the financial flexibility to be able to absorb what is huge R&D, right? That's your creative realm. It's like if you have a company that does something and they don't have an R&D department, those are the, those, that's the crew that just hemorrhages money. They don't really produce a lot. Mm -hmm. They spend a ton of money, a ton of time, a ton of resources, and their yield can be really, really low. But if a company's set up in a way that that's acceptable, you'll find a lot of people really enjoy that type of environment. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And the companies that do invest in it historically are the ones that come up with the superior products. It might take a while, but without that R&D, you're not going to have a pipeline of products to take to the marketplace. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a much longer term play. And that's why I said, like, I started making art. You know, kids got violins when they were single digit years. You know, I got paintbrushes and pencils. I, I'm getting professional yield in consistent ways really in the last 10 years, hmm. you know, that, that's a, that's a 20 year gestation period. That's awful. That's <laughs> awful to like, to go through. It's terrible. It's like, it, there is not a, there's not a shred of security in that process in the right. development of it. It's expensive. It's time consuming. It's annoying to be around. I'm sure you could ask my girlfriend. It is crushingly annoying to be around because so, it's an, it's an R and D department that doesn't have a necessary product. We don't even know what we're making here. <laughs> so let me, let me ask you a question that's kind of, I, I've been obsessing about as of recently. And uh, if you need me to define certain things, let me know, or if, or if you don't want to even get into it, but um, what do you think about um, uh, memes and uh, the meme culture online um, in terms of 
art and creation? Because um, you, you sound like uh, the part that, that has been holding or that has concerned you the most is, is the amount of uh, time and cost to all of this stuff. But when you have a meme, you have this, this board, you know, basically, if you just look at the old school memes, super simple, doesn't cost very much money at all uh, to just change the words up a little bit. And then you have something that, that could go viral. And in terms of that being uh, some form of uh, some, some type of new art form, um, that's kind of, it's, it's having an effect in the world. Do you have any thoughts on that? On memes. Um, Cause these things are, are winning elections these days. So something to think about. It is. So I guess in areas where memes come, I want to say a little more out of the thread of advertising and propaganda mm-hmm. than they do fine art. So there's like, they're maybe in the same family, but they're cousins. So, well, okay. I, I, I'm going to try to counter you a little bit. Um, Trump just uh, posted a meme that uh, I thought was beautiful because it expressed something. It Is it like, yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I'll share my screen. So I can pull it up. <laughs> a Trump <Yeah>. meme. <laughs> That's something. Let me see. I was looking up the word fail when you brought it up. Yeah, so I looked up mine. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. Man, he posts a lot of shit. <laughs> Uh, okay, yeah. So, so basically, is it, am I looking at it? Yeah, you, you seeing it? No, no, no. We're just seeing Welcome to the Internet Memology 101. Oh, <laughs> sorry. Let me unshare. Stop share. Um, I clicked on the wrong one. So, so basically, the idea of this meme and this uh-huh. breaking down the the art behind it is one. First of all, you have to admit that that took time. You had to create a, a secondary Biden to go behind the other Biden, uh-huh. and and basically it. You know, this is Biden apologizing for, for being weird and creepy. And then okay. they take another um, uh, Biden and, and have him do exactly what he was doing that was weird and creepy. Yeah. Um, and um, it, the virality of that and, and, and everything is, is one, it, it did take time to, to create. Um, and, and two, it, it expresses a, a story of, you know, Biden being creepy. And, um, and, and it, it does it in just 15 seconds. Um, and we'll take a, a look at another one, um, just so you can st- start looking at these things. And, and um, so this is this is from um, some uh, the Carnival di Varejo. They built a four-story high God Emperor Trump, uh-huh. and, and the idea behind this meme—I mean, for this this God Emperor guy—he's like this this guy from Warhammer 40k. And they got all this like symbolism and stuff going on. And he's got a sword that's made out of Twitter tweets and stuff. And um, 
I don't see how this is different from from any other form of art because this to me this is uh this is beauty and it has symbolism and it means something and then it just it cuts through so much of the of the, the media's noise and, and that's why it's so disruptive and then you look back at all the uh, you know art from like you know the Mona Lisa and and Da Vinci and stuff and all that art was doing the same thing except that art was taking that, that art would take Da Vinci years to make you know Sistine Chapel would take years to make whereas these take a much shorter amount of time, but are just as devastating in terms of uh, uh, cultural uh, changing of cultural norms and stuff. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, there are a few categorically, we're mixing a few categories that um, don't live so well near one another. Um, Mm -hmm. There, they, there is a, there is a visual component to them that like, which is, um, which links them. Uh, the, the question about the, oh, art is, art is used in two sort of ways. One is it's, it's, it's when somebody does something really well, it's like, and it's described as an art. It's elevated itself out of its, like out of its regular level. Like the cooking is an art, right? The dancing is an art. And then like, it goes up to a higher level. It's a way in which people describe that. Um, and then there is art as the, the more plastic version, uh, plastic, like physical version of things. So if we look at them and we look at them over history, one thing, one thing that, that reads immediately with those is that the, the political leanings of just about every civilization after a period of time are of no interest to anybody. Nobody really gives a shit. Like the, the political leanings of 15th century Italy are fucking useless to anybody. They're illegible because nobody gets the references. No one's going to know who Joe Biden is in 100 years. So it's, like, it's not, it's not going to have any sort of relevance because the strength of the communication actually requires that you know all of the references to Joe Biden. And if you don't, you take that away. You don't have to know who Mona Lisa is to go see Mona Lisa. In fact, we don't really know who she is because the strength of it is not on her political leanings. And most politically oriented art over time has become less and less significant to subsequent generations who don't really relate to it. So it's not, it's not a type of artwork that um, I've ever had an interest in like at, a, at an intense level which doesn't mean it's not valid. It just means that like, it's just not so interesting to me. Mm-hmm. So, a lot of um, the- so, okay. Okay. So you brought up uh, survivability, right? So Mona Lisa is going to last a lot longer than, than the Joe Biden meme. Um, and then, and then I, I countered that with, um, with, you know, the, but the Mona Lisa took years upon years and then that's not even including the amount of, uh, amount of creative training that it took to actually create that. Whereas, the Joe Biden meme can be replicated extraordinarily more quickly. So the, the word meme actually comes from the word gene because they're doing the same thing. And some animals live much longer than uh, um, other animals, whereas uh, other animals like bacteria, they mm-hmm. multiply way faster. And that's why bacteria are way more successful than us. Not because they're, they, they live much longer than us. They, they live like mere hours at times, but um, they're multiplying so much faster. So a Joe Biden meme has already probably been multiplied so many more times, whereas a Mona Lisa is not going to be multiplied in my lifetime. Um, and, and it will still survive, but uh, there's just not going to be that many more of them. Whereas, whereas these things, 
it's almost like um, uh, the art isn't the actual creation of, of, of or the meme isn't the actual art that is the, the creation. It's the offshoots and the offspring that, that can come from all of this stuff. And, um, and it, it constantly kind of globbing on together and, and then changing and rearranging much, much quicker than, um, than, than a Mona Lisa, than, than something that, that would take much, much more, lo- much longer to create. Yeah. I mean, it, it has a prolific quality to it. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, there was a quote by Roldan that Henri Cartier-Bresson used to reference all the time that what is made with time, time respects, uh, you know, for things that are made very quickly, they tend to also go away very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, as you know, the, the art of it, um, whether it's painting or drawing or sculpture, video art, performance art, I mean, any, any realm of where categorically you can put art into the art is constantly expanding and you have interesting artists doing things with intentionally disposable, politically oriented, uh, work and concepts, things that actually won't last on design. Um, is that it doesn't play to all audiences. I think the sort of the, the area of distinction is just being able to say like, it's not an audience, the same audience that necessarily would be purchasing a Monet is probably not going, like they may or may not be into the Joe Biden meme. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, if they're not really relatable in a way that you say like, well, space shells are very interesting from an engineering standpoint, you should also like a lawnmower. And it's like, well, yes, they have some overlaps and they kind of do, yes, they require some engineering, some combustion, but they, they're probably not playing to the same collector base. And the relationship between art, the culture, and the way in which it's brought about, either through patronage or like some way that sort of finances the creation of, say, the Sistine Chapel, may not be relatable to something in like a meme arena. So it's, it, it's prolific. Like the, the way in which it reaches many people, it reaches many people very quickly. And it didn't take a whole lot to actually get there. But when you're done with it, what, did you, what do you actually get? What do you have? You know, I, I was listening to an interview with Warren Buffett randomly. I don't listen to Warren Buffett with any regularity. But they were asking about the Lyft IPO. And he, he prefaced it by saying that, one, he hasn't bought an IPO since 1955. Um, <laughs> so to take it with a grain of salt that he doesn't purchase IPOs almost as a policy. But two, he said, if you take the if you take the projected worth of Lyft at twenty five billion dollars, he said, we think about buying shares of companies as buying companies. What do you actually get? And he would venture a guess that for for twenty five billion dollars, you could probably buy a bunch of other things that were of greater value than Lyft because there isn't the whole thing dissolves. There's really you have an email list. There's there's actually not a whole lot of stuff. You know, like. The Mona Lisa, you have a painting, true. Uh, the meme, you have a digital image, which is a synthetic version of something, which is not to say that it doesn't have value, um, but there isn't really, there isn't so much there from a, from the ability to make something culturally that lasts and that is preservable. A lot of the digital production, things that only existed in a digital sphere, we don't know what'll happen in a hundred years. Yeah, I, I I don't think anyone's looking at the Joe Biden meme and saying that they have anything. Um, I'm looking at it in terms of of creativity and the ability to create faster. 
Um, and, um, but create what fast, like what part it's not cre- It's creating ideas as fast as ideas have been created. That part, like you create an idea right now, that's as fast as that Biden thinks. It hasn't set any records in that capacity. Um, well, in terms of, well, an idea needs to be actually created in the physical world before it's anything. Cause you know, I have 50,000 thoughts per day. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll probably only act on like 10 of them. Um, 11, if, uh, if you include masturbation, <laughs> but, um, um, the, I guess, um, I guess like you're, you're looking at the, at the Joe Biden, I mean, you're like, you're like, what value does that bring? Um, I say, you know, well, why can't we just use the term art for art's sake? You know, it's just, uh, it's just something, someone had an idea and then they created it. And then for some reason people like it most probably for political reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but there's plenty, there's plenty of uh, many, there's many more memes that are not political yeah. uh, out there. There's, there's this fat bugs bunny meme going around. Um, and, um, and so it's just, it's just something that, that people like to do. And then that, that kind of like reminded me of like, you know, just doodling, but, but then sharing the, the doodles and, and, you know, but I would say 90, 99% of the, of the memes out there, people are like, that's, that's stupid. And nobody likes it. And then nobody looks at it. And then you make something and, and, uh, you see that, you know, the president of the United States retweets one of your memes. I mean, that must, uh, that, that's got some value. In a prolific, in a prolific sense, in terms of like eyeballs, you know, how many eyeballs are on it. And this is something that companies are actually dealing with is like, they're trying to quantify the value of visual impressions constantly. Mm-hmm. That's why they give Instagram influencers stuff because like they're trying to ascribe some sort of value to the idea that somebody sees something that they're putting out there. And it's a very, very messy world. There is a lot of, it's, it's a lot of conjecture. It's, it's not something that is, it's not something that is canonized in a way that, um, they're not going to struggle with it. I don't know how long into the future, but like it, it's brought a new element to the equation. And you know, the meme memes are, you have an evolution of a combination of text and images that have a historical precedent. So we could see how they've performed. We could see how political cartoons have performed going back all, all the way to the time of the Greeks. Right. Mm-hmm. So we could see how those did things. Memes they're in the like, they're kind of like digital Hallmark cards. I think Hallmark missed a really big opportunity to actually create Instagram because Instagram is a digital version of what Hallmark is. It's oh. some bullshit written over a picture, which is what a Hallmark card is. Hallmark just emphasized doing mushy stuff. Instagram was clever enough to do non-mushy stuff too so that more people look at it. Memes are like one iteration. They'd be like one sub-chapter of what Hallmark was doing just in a digital form. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know where, you know where all the birthday cards that, you know, you got over the course of your life are, I know where mine are. They sit in a box and fucking useless. So they're, it's, and, and they're even less useful to somebody other than me. Like once they lose that meaning, I've always, I've never dealt in the political realm of art, not because it's not significant, but I, it hasn't been terribly interesting for me. And I haven't found as a metric for me for art, it's lasting quality is something that I find very compelling. And the political realm of things tends to be one of the, that's not a good, that's not a good arena you want to get into if you're looking at art that has lasting value, because once you lose the base story, unless you create some unknown mythology about like Mona Lisa, it doesn't tend to be interesting. So like an artist who deals in the political realm would probably have a very different take on it because they 
the value that's ascribed to their work and to what presumably collectors, museums, galleries, individuals, whoever do, they would have a very different take on it. You know, it's, it's kind of, it's like, it's asking somebody who makes suits to critique a wedding dress. And it's like, uh, yeah, it could be interesting. Not the sort of realm of operation, which is not to say that wedding dresses aren't valid. But to a tailor who makes suits, they may not be particularly interesting to them. We can't all be into everything equally. And mm. just because something is culturally significant also doesn't mean we have to be necessarily into it. There's not like Super Bowl is culturally significant. I don't watch it. Mm. It doesn't diminish. The, the, me not watching the Super Bowl doesn't make it not important. It's just not important to me. Yeah. Yeah, the, the only reason why I brought it up was it's just it's been fascinating me uh, as of recently. Uh, I mean, you, you saw that I wrote on it, too, about it. Um, and um, I had an artist here, so I was like, well, let's just see what he thinks. You yeah, there, there's slow work and fast work. I've tended to find slower work more interesting. I find fast work like it's like jokes. You know, like if you get if you hear a joke once and it's funny. And then you hear a second time, and it's not so funny anymore. It's kind of lost a lot of its power for you. Well, that's that's the interesting thing, because uh, if you look at it at the meme as a joke, um, and you see it one time, and then you see it again, but it's slightly changed, um, it, it, just like some wording on one of the Velociraptor memes or Slowpoke memes or something, and then it's something completely different, but it's the still it's still the same. It's it's you know it's just like from the interview. It's it's different. Um, but still same. Uh, and, you know, it's just like, it, it's like it, something's changing every single, single time, but it's still using the exact same base platform. Um, so I, I think one thing that you could put to it, just as, as you explore it further, ask yourself how many times you pay forty four ninety nine to deal with it. Just like, just like how often, if you had to revisit it and there was actually a fee for it, like, you know, it's got a value to you. It's very easy to value things that are completely free. Well, not completely free because you had to buy your computer to look at it. But, you know, when things have just impressions, like, oh, that's cool. Like, I'll watch that again. It's like, I would watch certain things again or look at certain things again, which have value because I would actually put dollar value to it. I would say that that thing is valuable enough that, like, I would go do that again. Once things leave the realm of free and become something that you have to pay for, it completely alters. When someone has to put something they value on the table to experience something that they're engaging with, it changes the dynamic incredibly, which is why collectors are very different than the viewing audience. When a museum puts something on show and people come to see it, if they have to pay for it, it's very different than if they can just see it. People's, the way in which people react to things that are free versus things that they have to put dollars to it's a real game changer. Mm. And, it, and that, I think, is something that's like, okay, it's, it, like, if somebody says, like, oh, it's interesting to watch it again, and it's like, yeah, but not for $44.99. It's not that interesting. Like, it'd be interesting, again, if I could watch it for free, but I'm not going to pay to watch it. That'd be nuts. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe you'd watch it 50 times, and you'd say, like, I would invest $4,000 to watch these memes evolve <laughs> over time, and you might be a meme collector. That could be, that may become a thing. I don't know, you know, 
people oh, buy jalopy cars that don't run and they're like i love this i would love to get in a car that doesn't work other people are like i need a car that works i can't deal with this you know it's it's just the collector base is maybe a little different it could be an emerging one that you will stumble upon oh there's i mean there's definitely meme collectors but i don't think anyone's paying for them um <laughs> they're just putting them in their hard drive next, next to their porn folder yeah it'll i mean it'll be genius when they can figure when they can figure out how to charge for those things I think, well, uh, that's the, see, that's the thing about the internet. The internet is, is, is free because um, they're not, most, a lot of people aren't selling products because, because the, the viewer is the product because they're, they're the ones looking at the ads. So it's like, like you were saying earlier, it's like, how do, you, how do I get somebody to go on my site and look at my site for a little bit only because I want them to look at my ads, you know? So it's like, um, uh, when you, like, you know, when you use Facebook, you are the product. They literally take all of your information and then you scroll through and every other uh, every other picture is a is an ad yeah and it's like it's like uh so we we have no say in, in in how we're using that because we're you know we're essentially what they're selling to the advertisers and to china mm-hmm. so. um but yeah no i don't think i don't think memes are ever gonna i don't think they're ever gonna catch on and, and start costing four thousand dollars to look at yeah the political cartoons like they you know they used to pay artists a little bit to do them i mean now they're starting to get some traction the ones from the 1800s are really like they're starting to sell for some big, starting to sell for some big money. Oh, yeah, yeah. So they they might. I mean, I would, I would incur. I I would venture a guess that if someone made physical means, like if they really, if they if they just put a little more effort into the medium, it would make a big shift. Because hmm. you've seen that you've seen that in other arenas. You can. Oh gosh, I can't remember the artist's name. There's an artist who has a huge installation in the entry of the Louvre right now. And I think it's fascinating because street art used to be memes. It used to be free shit that was sprayed on the side of subway cars and underpasses. And now they've gotten a way to like get it into galleries and museums where like, this shit sells for million. I mean, hundreds of thousands of dollars with consistency. <laughs> and some of it is probably entering into the millions, but it's like they made a medium shift that allowed someone to say like, Hey, you know what? This one, I got this piece of street art like this. I have the physical one. And even if there's a proliferation of cheap free ones all around the world that got it known, people are still buying. People still like physical objects. That, that part hasn't, the object changes, but the physicality of it ha- has, it's, it's morphed. People still want to like, they still want shit on their walls. They, they just kind of do. Gotcha. Well, um, I, I guess, I mean, it, it, Anthony, if you don't, if you guys don't mind, uh, it, you, you went to, to, that's kind of a good transition to, um, to talking about that, the Island that you went to. Tana. Uh, Tana. Yeah. Because those guys didn't don't have anything, they seem to be much more uh, at peace with that than uh, um, than the West. Would, would you like to close on on talking about that that topic? Sure. That was um, so. I went to. I spent just shy of three weeks on an island called Tana, which is in the chain of South Pacific islands called Vanuatu. Um, and when I was there, I was hosted by a guy named Tom Capula. And Tom and his wife, Margaret, um, had a little bungalow set up uh, on the coast where I stayed the whole time, pretty much the whole time I was there. 
Um, and the island is, I didn't know what the island was going to be like because most of the information that I got from people who had been there was kind of conflicting. So I didn't know how, like, are we doing running water? Is there hot water? Is there internet? Is there cell service? I don't know. I don't know what's going on. So I just went out there like, okay, we'll just have at it and see. And as my time on the island was winding down, I mean, there were, there were a few cars, you know, houses. I had water, but only cold water. There was a flushing toilet. Like, it was delightful to be on the island with not a lot of stuff. Um, but Tom and I were having a conversation one evening. And some of the people had been off island. They'd been to Australia, to New Zealand. Um, and I asked him, I said, Tom, is there anything off island that you would want. And this was underpinned with the idea that London School of Economics rated, rated Vanuatu as one of the happiest places on earth. It goes sort of between Bhutan and Vanuatu, which didn't make any sense to me. I'm like, I, what the hell does that really mean? Happiest place on earth. Is everybody just like jumping and skipping as they like cruise around on a Tuesday? Like, what, you know, what, what is that? How's that actually flush out? Um, and life on the island seemed pretty normal day to day. Margaret, you know, she'd do her cooking and, you know, regular tasks around the village and around the bungalows. Nothing seemed particularly out of the ordinary in the way that the people lived. It was not like, it was not as if Bacchus had taken over the island and everybody was in a frantic drunken orgy 24 hours a day on a Pacific island, just like loving life. They just did their thing. But when I asked Tom, what would you like from off island? He spent a better part of a minute in silence. And when it's just you and some guy you're not like super close with, like sitting there for a minute in silence, like it's, that's a long time as he's just going through his mental Rolodex and you could just almost hear it flicking. And he said, you know, I've got the, I got the house. He was referring to his house in the village. It's like, I've got, Margaret, his wife, he's got the kids, his brother, Lava, named after the volcano, had the truck, so he didn't need a truck. He said, we got our health. He was like, you know what? I'm good. This blew my fucking mind. I have never found a human on planet Earth where if I asked, hey, is there anything you'd like? Anything, anything in the world. You might even muster world peace. I mean, it could be a concept. He didn't want anything. He was like, I'm good. And it didn't take him 10 years to get to it. He was like, he, he ran through his options in life. And he was like, I have everything I need. I'm good. And in that moment, I understood. I don't know if London School of Economics picked it, if they got to the metric this way. But if someone were to say that you met the happiest man on planet earth. I'm like, I get why. Cause he doesn't want anything. He's, he's perfectly happy with his life, the way that it is. And that was an experience that I've never had up until that point, And I haven't had since. And believe me, I ask people when I travel all over the place to see if I can get something that even approaches that. And I've never come across it. He's the only dude. Do you keep in touch with Tom? A little bit on email. 
They have a... Uh, well, they don't have internet though, right? There is. So, and uh, they can get internet in uh, part of the island. Um, and occasionally when they go to Fate, which is the main island, it, they can sign on there. Um, but it's not like I could lob an email out and get a response in like four months. Right. Um, but I see, you know, I, I see their place. I see travelers going to their place. Um, I see the bungalows and it, it, it all, I, I track it at a distance. I would love the opportunity to go back and just spend a little more time there because there were, there were a handful of experiences that completely defied my understanding of, of options, of options in life things that were conceivable options to me, I was like, that's impossible. And I was there and I'm like, fuck, that just happened. How did that work out? Like it just expanded what I had in my head of possibility. Can you, can you tell us like what, one of those things that happened? Uh, so actually when we were, um, when we were leaving, I had a, I had a flight back to Afate, Afate to Australia, Australia to LA, LA to New York. It was going to be a marathon return flight home. And it was all hinged on this short hop flight back to Afate. So I got all my stuff packed up. I hadn't seen Tom for two days. And I asked Margaret, like, is Tom around? Like I got, I had to get to the airport, like all gear, tools and shit. I had to get over there. And she's like, oh, let me check. I'll go to the village and like walk to the village. So I'll see you in two hours. Um, <laughs> and it turned out that like Lava's car was in a hundred pieces. Like the engine was dropped out, like bits and bobs taken apart. <laughs> Shit. I got like, you know, I got way too much gear to be able to just like lug down the road. And Tom was like, we'll find another car. Okay. I've only seen lavas <laughs> find another one <laughs> so you know like a little i don't know it's a half an hour an hour later like the, the car like a scooby-doo mobile rolls up and he's like we can take this and i'm looking at my watch thinking like i think i might have missed the flight so we get in the scooby-doo mobile which is spewing exhaust out of the dashboard vents i mean it's just a absolute wreck it must have been three cockroaches in there running the motor and we get to the airport which the airport's this big right it's a little hut so but the jet is twice as long as the airport building so when we turn up and there's no jet tom looks at me and he's like i think we might have missed the plane i'm thinking <laughs> fucking no shit we missed the plane there's no plane here where is it hiding so it, so his answer was Maybe we'll find another one. And I'm like, how the fuck are you going to find an airplane, dude? There's one jet. Like, what? It's like hidden on the backside of the volcano. And like, I had gotten people to like, when you're on the island, like, no matter what happens, like, don't lose your shit. Like, don't freak out like a New Yorker. Like, just be chill. They'll get it sorted. And he gets out of the truck, walks down out of sight. And I'm like, I'm looking around and I'm like, dude, there is no plane. There's one flight like every other day. I'm not getting off the island. I'm going to miss all my connecting flights. Christ, it's going to cost me extra money. Like a mess, an absolute mess. Um, and that portion of it, I was all, I was financing myself and was going to get reimbursed when I got back to New York. So like an extra 500, 
$1,000 for stuff. Like this was no bueno. Tom is stumbling down by, I get out of the truck, a Scooby-Doo van and look down and it's like a graveyard of Cessna planes. I mean, shit with broken propellers and tail wings busted off. Uh, and he comes back and he's like, I think I found a plane. I'm like, Oh, it's oh, wonderful. One, you found the carcass of an airplane. It's not going to fly. And he's like, no, 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 this guy down over here. And I look and like, actually out of one of the Cessnas, it's not all beaten up. And I see like a leg hanging out of the side of the Cessna. And it's a young pilot. Dude's got to be like 22 years old, maybe 23. And he had taken a bunch of guys over to the island on a bachelor party. It was like a stag do. And they were coming back from visiting the volcano. And he's like, yeah, I got one seat left. You want the seat? And I'm like, how do I pay you? He's like, well, we'll sort it out like when we, when we land. He's like, but what we have to test first is if your gear is too heavy. So I got carpentry tools, camera gear, all kinds of crap. So he goes, we put the stuff in. As long as the back of the plane doesn't hit the ground, like we're cool. So load everything up. <laughs> These guys are coming back from their volcano bit. I'm, I'm starting to get excited because it seems like a possibility. We load everything up without the humans. It's just us. There's still four other guys we're going to turn up. He pulls out the blocks from the back of the plane and it's like, bang, hits like a ton of bricks. And he's like, oh, that's kind of heavy. Now, I don't know anything about airplanes. I don't know how dangerous that actually is. Years later, I told that to a friend who was a pilot, and he's like, that is insane. When you take off, if the back end of the plane is too heavy, you go like this, you stall out, you drop and fall out of the sky. He's like, that guy should have never taken off with you. I had no clue. But Tom had somehow found me an airplane. He said, maybe we find one. And I thought, you are fucking insane. But he found an airplane. And I got off the island. We did not crash. There was an extra seat. And like that was a point at which I was like, I was going through a period in my life where things, things were transitioning from construction to photo and art. Like there was a lot of stuff not making a lot of sense. And that was just like the cherry on top where I was like, you know what? I don't have any idea what's possible. <laughs> and those experiences, like they, that, I'm sure that will stick with me for the rest of my life. I'm sure. I mean, that's a brilliant, I love that story. Especially the part where you, you learned years later that uh, that plane should have crashed. In Terrible the, idea. Yeah. We probably should have fallen out of the sky over the South Pacific. Do not recommend that. Don't do that again. <laughs> no, 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 no. But that's an example of something like in my head, I, it was fully formed as to what was possible. And I was absolutely wrong. That's a real cool lesson. So, Have you been able to apply that to the rest of your life? It's, it's given me pause in areas where I think like, Shh, there's no way out of this. Or like, <laughs> there's no, we can't do this. This is not going to work. <clears throat> it's knowing that if I use my sort of rational capacity, it's limited. It's limited. Like I'm not a... Very. I, I, I'm not, I'm not brilliant. I'm not, I don't have learning disabilities. I am somewhere in the middle, but my rational capacity for evaluating what is possible is fucking rotten. It is not I, I, more often than not. I will come to a predetermined possibility or a foregone conclusion of like, 
this isn't going to work. You can't pull this off. It does. So it's changed the way how much weight I put on that. That voice in my head is now like, it's kind of a whisper in the background. He still yells and screams and throws a tantrum from time to time. <laughs> you just don't but pay attention to Oh, him. you just got to let him hit. Like he's, he'll, it's like a baby. Like they scream yeah. it out, they get tired, they fall asleep. Well, that's cool that you could do that. And I, I think that you, usually the way that happens is we base our expectations on, the, on what's possible based on what we've already experienced, right? And that's part of the problem. In Tom's case, he experienced stuff that you hadn't. So we, you, until you saw that, your world was this big. But then when, when you met Tom, it got a little bit bigger. Yeah. In regards yeah, to you, possibilities. You're right. I mean, evaluating, <laughs> evaluating the possibilities of the future on the occurrences of the past is, is, is incredibly good for risk management. It is a horrendous way to live life. Hmm. Yeah. I think it's a good place to end on, uh, on that, that point. Well, cool. Thanks so much, guys. It was really, uh, it was a great pleasure and honor to speak with you guys on, uh, on so many different topics. It was fun, Adam. And two hours went by and, uh, we've, we've always said like the, the measure of a good conversation is, uh, time seems to go by so quickly. And, uh, this, this podcast definitely fits into that category. So thanks for being on here. Thanks for giving us a lot of things to think about. Um, and you have a lot of great ideas, a lot of great experiences and thanks for sharing it with us. Amazing. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks so much guys. Happy birthday, man. Oh yeah. Brilliant. (laughs) Thank you. Take care. Cool. Talk to you guys soon. Bye. Bye.